Hi, I'm Kim Rickards, professional superglue and co-creator of Manifest. Manifest is a global platform with a vision to empower professionals of color to make connections and build intentional community to manifest careers, dreams, and goals. In this podcast, we will nurture, inspire, connect, and elevate our listeners through relevant stories and conversations. Now, let's Manifest. Welcome back, everyone, to Let's Manifest. Thanks for tuning into this episode, and I'm really excited to have this conversation today. And one of the reasons why is because when I launched this podcast, it was really to tell untold stories of professionals of color, really in hopes that listeners would be empowered and inspired to manifest their dreams and goals by hearing the journey of people that look like them. There's so much power in hearing someone with the same or similar skin tone, culture, and career trajectory to yours winning, quote unquote, right? And for this reason, today I'm privileged to be joined by former colleague and co-founder of Isusu, the leading financial technology platform dismantling barriers to housing, Samir Goyle. And Isusu's fundamental belief is that where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity shouldn't determine where you end up in life. I support that foundational statement. I'm a huge supporter of everything Samir is doing, and I'm happy to say, Samir, welcome to Let's Manifest. Thanks, Kim. Such a delight to be here with you. Really looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. We're going to have fun. We are going to have fun. And and because it's been such a long time since we've been in the hallways of the LinkedIn New York (laughs) office, I want to ask you, how have you been? Yeah, Kim, that's that's a big question. I think um, <laughs> it's a loaded one, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd say there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, but in terms of all things considered, with the pandemic, with COVID, when it first hit, I had some folks who were sick, got the got the virus. Unfortunately, they've been able to recover. Everyone in my life is happy and healthy, and so I can't really ask for too much more. And on the Asusu front. You know, it's been insanely busy, but in a good way. So my work-life balance is pretty rough, but everything else is is all right. All things considered, right? Yeah. That, that, that's partly why whenever someone is asked that question, people are like, do you want the real deal or do you, <laughs> do you, do you want what I tell people at work? You know, and, and the reality is that depending on where you are, it could be very loaded, but for you, we know that there's positive coming out of everything that you're doing, which I'm glad to hear that your work-life balance, <laughs> you're working on it. You're working on it. Indeed. I figured I'd give you more than good. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I appreciate you for that. I appreciate you for letting us know what's really going on. And speaking of what's really going on, before we get there, we're going to start with a quick game of this or that. Have you played before? I haven't, but it sounds a little bit intuitive, but maybe you can maybe you can walk me through. Uh, Yeah. So the rules are simple. The rules are say whatever comes to mind. Don't think about it and just have fun. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, that's nothing like building a platform, right? This, (laughs) this is the easiest thing you probably ever have to do. (laughs) Sounds good, Kim. I'm excited. All right, let's do it. So the first one is mansion or cabin in the mountains. Cabin in the mountains. City or country? City. Bar soap or liquid soap? Liquid soap. Subway or car? Subway. Calendar or cell phone alert? Um, calendar on my cell phone. <laughs> You're like, well, guess what? I'm gonna put in both of them. <laughs> I'm gonna put both of them in there. What about store bought gifts or handmade gifts? 
Oh, I'm a sucker for handmade. Those are awesome. And people don't do enough of those anymore. What about Amazon or eBay? Amazon. Last one, Google or Safari? Google. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Google? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, shout out to everyone using Safari. But yeah, we're Google fans over here for sure. Yeah, you know, Meats has made it indispensable. So I got to give it to them. <laughs> got to give it to them. Got to give it to them. Now, see, that wasn't hard at all. No, but I got to say, it's one of the most creative podcast uh, intros I've done. So oh, I'm enjoying good. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm glad. It's just the way for, for listeners to just get to know a little bit of the other side of you, right? Now <laughs> they, 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 they're knowing a little bit of what you like versus what you don't like. The one question I love to ask my guests, especially coming into the conversation, is knowing all that you know now. What is the advice that you would give to 16-year-old Samir? Yeah, Kim, that's that's a good question. I think, you know, the the advice I'd give my 16-year-old self, I think one would be, you know, nothing worth doing is worth doing alone. And mm -hmm. it's really important to kind of find those people that kind of support you and help you kind of lift your horizons rather than lower them. That is <laughs> Whew, that was a word that was <laughs> just I'm just thinking about being 16 and I'm like yeah that is that is definitely a good one because I feel like at 16 sometimes depending on you know what you were into it could have been extremely competitive where you kind of felt like all about self right and you know it's funny it's like also just like who you're around and you know they like to say you're the product of the five people you spent the most time with and I right. think that you know, the people you choose to elect to spend that time with are such a integral part of like who you are, who you become, how you grow. Uh, and so I'd, I'd focus on, on that rather than just, you know, when you're 16, you kind of just are who you're around because they're there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's like they're there. You, you, you're just, you're not even thinking about 17, 18, 19. Like you're just with your people. You're hanging out. You're doing something that may haunt you in, in the future. Hopefully not. But <laughs> I do think that, um, and I remember my mom saying this all the time. It's like birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are some people that I have been friends with since I was eight years old and we're still mm. friends to this day. And we're, we're all in very good places in our life. And it could very well come back to that statement, right? maybe she planted a seed and we just all subconsciously were like, we're going to make sure we ride out together. Maybe, maybe that's what happened. Like, these are my people. I'm going to stick with them no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But then I also at one point became that person that co-signed. Remember when Drake came out and Drake had that song, No New Friends? I used to kind of co-sign just a little bit with that until I learned like, no Drake. I'm here for new friends because new friends not only can challenge you and help you get to the next level, but then you can also share your experiences with them as well. And everybody just wins when it's done that way. Yeah, I love that. You know, as, as catchy as the song was, I think, uh, you know, there's always space in, in your life for new people. And I don't know, I tend to be an opportunist. So if I meet mm -hmm. someone who's interesting, like always want to give someone a give that person a shot to, you know get to know them, spend time with them, et cetera. Absolutely. And that's the way that I think this world should work, <laughs> that we should all really be working together and looking for ways to help each other get better. So 
I'm glad you're already doing it. And speaking of you being an opportunist, you're also a social entrepreneur, writer, and a connector. And I read that you're committed to bridging the public and private sectors by bringing together diverse communities to eliminate the access gap. Can you share a little bit more on one, how you met your co-founder, and then two, what led you to do this awesome work that you're doing with the SUSU? <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks, Kim. That's a good question. So. I'll start with my co-founder story. Abby and I have been friends now for a little over eight years, and we actually met at a conference called the Clinton Global Initiative University. And we were both kind of working on separate social enterprises at the time, but we just met, clicked, became friends. We would room together at various conferences and just realized we were cut from the same school of cloth. We had this really you know, keen, essentially understanding and appreciation for business and the market. But at the same time, given our backgrounds, our families were really committed to doing something good in the world. And so I think we were both kind of seeking that path to do so. And we just got to know each other, grew in mutual respect and decided to start a consulting business together, uh, which still exists, and then ended up founding Asusu together. And, you know, at this point, we're work husbands, literally. Like, <laughs> I, I've been through everything with uh, Abby. And so it, it's it's been a probably one of the most important relationships in my life. But, you know, as far as what inspired me to do the work that we do at Asusu, it really comes down to my family story. Um, I grew up in an immigrant family from New Delhi, India. And when my folks moved here, they were really, you know, like many pursuing the American dream. And I think what I saw was that it was just so much harder than it should have been. Right. You know, like my my father was mugged on his first day. Uh, we didn't really have a place to, to stay. Uh, and a lot of my upbringing was watching my parents work miracles with, you know, no money, no credit and really nowhere to go. And so, you know, that's kind of the thought I was left with was what you shared earlier, Kim, which is our core ethos at Asusu. No matter where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity, it shouldn't really determine where you end up in life. Right. Right. And that's amazing work that you're doing this because I'm sure listeners, myself included, we can relate to that. You know, my family as well. My, my I was born here, but my parents are immigrants and they definitely depended on the susu <laughs> to actually, you know, get through a few things, a few life experiences, if you will. So like paying college tuition, um, down payment on a house and home renovations, to name a few. Like these were a huge part of our community because our families were, well, my family was making something from what quote unquote would have been considered nothing. And we weren't poor at all. So I won't even paint that picture like we were poor people. No, we were not. But at the same time, we weren't very rich either, right? Right. But the way that our family or my family was or is, I should say, I'm like, not was because we truly are these type of people, but there was always whatever we needed supplied. And mm. it, it was because of the fact that they're hardworking people, they're people that, you know, if there's a problem, they're going to solve it. <laughs> you know, yep. this, is just, this is just how it is. But the challenges that they experienced coming in, yeah, Honestly, some of them could have been avoided, I would think, but, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't know why things are that way, right? Mm. But sadly, too many of us can connect over those type of stories. Right. And, you know, Kim, I resonate with everything you said. I think my parents and, you know, for me, I stand on the shoulders of giants like they took a lot of risk and were willing to figure things out. But as a child, I didn't feel like I had any shortage of investment or 
you know, uh, care for my education and upbringing. And, um, you know, it's only kind of in hindsight, looking back, connecting the dots that you can be like, wow, this, this is really isn't how it was for everyone else. And right. that's, that's right. not really how it should be. <laughs> right. But then it also, to, to me at least, and you can probably agree, but it keeps you very humble and hungry. Right. Because it's like, huh, okay, well, you know, I may not have had X, Y, and Z, but now that I'm in a position to have this, I want to make sure everybody else does. You know, and I, I heard someone say it's called sending the elevator back down. Mm. Yeah, because it's like, you know what, if there's a way for me to ensure that you don't have to have, you know, those same hardships, I'm going to do it because I know what it, it felt like. And I don't want that for you. I love it. I love that phrase, uh, you know, send the elevator back down. We, we kind of think about it as pave that path for everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't be the exception to the rule. It should be the rule. It should be the rule, you know, my goodness. I can't wait to keep keep going into (laughs) more of the work that you're doing, because, again, it is really necessary, especially not just right now, but just in general. This is work that needs to be done. So as we continue to, you know, have this conversation, we'll get into the weeds of it. But what is the biggest misunderstanding that people have about Isisu. Let's just really put that out there right now. Let's talk about what Isisu is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So there's some confusion around Isisu because as a company, we've made some pivots over time. Mm-hmm. And so just to give an understanding, we actually started out Isisu as a savings business. And it was really predicated, Kim, on what you had said earlier, you know, those kind of community savings-based groups that your family had participated in. My family did something similar, as did um, Abby's. And we essentially thought that, you know, less than 70% of Americans have $400 in their bank account. Um, Community savings has worked for our families. What if we build a product around this to help people save more money and kind of get ahead and build that financial resilience? Mm -hmm. And it's funny because, you know, we just built a product, brought it to market, and we learned, I think, two things that were really instrumental. Uh, One is that going directly to individual consumers is super expensive. Really? Uh, Yeah, because the thing is, especially for financial technology, it's it's all about trust. And so you need to get someone comfortable enough to give you, you know, maybe a social security number, maybe a driver's license, like really personal information. And the only way that Abby and I were able to do that would literally be like going to, you know, like community churches and groups like that. And that just wasn't a scalable way to build a business. Um, Mm -hmm. So we realized that we need to partner kind of in a more B2B or business to business fashion. But I think the other insight was just people would say to us, look, we all know we need to save money, but you tell us what we do, how we can do this if we're earning less than $40,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And that really stood out um, as something that we kind of not necessarily given as much thought to at the time, but really that credit and access to cheap capital in times of emergency was the barrier that a lot of our you know, the communities and the folks we were trying to help and serve were facing. And so as a business, we pivoted into what we do now, which is um, rent reporting. We partner with large multifamily landlords to capture mm-hmm. people's rental payment data and report it into the credit bureaus. And inspired by COVID, but really kind of also as part of our roadmap, now when renters are faced with a financial emergency or a, or a shortcoming of uh, cash, we are able to pair them with a 0% interest loan that's paid directly to the landlord, which keeps the landlord's cash flow healthy, but also makes sure our tenants don't get evicted, don't have to think about being on the streets and have time to have a fighting chance to make their ends meet. And so, yeah, uh, to answer your question, the biggest 
misperception is really just that we're primarily a savings business, but rather we've kind of pivoted into this credit and data space. And what are some of the challenges you face while doing that pivot or making that pivot? <sighs> that's that's a good one. Uh, I think one of the larger challenges, and I don't know if it's specifically around the pivot, is just breaking into a new industry like real estate that's really old school and is really an old boys club where everyone knows each other, the, they're going to the same meetings, they're interacting at the same events, but it makes it really hard for new entrants to kind of break in. And, and so we had to spend a lot of time building our brand, building our reputation, building relationships so that we could get our foot in the door. Um, and so that was one of the biggest challenges that we had to figure out. And I think the flip side of that is that once you're in, you're in, and then you are able to kind of piggyback on that close knit community of um, kind of gatekeepers at the start, but then end up being something that helps you accelerate and meet new clients and, and scale your business in the industry. Wow. You know, hearing that, I would never have thought that the real estate industry was very much like the old boys club and you I'm starting to hear that a lot about multiple industries. So it's, it's it's becoming way too common across the board. It's like, how do we really change that narrative? Because opportunities are, I mean, available to everyone, you would think. But just knowing that there are so many different doors that you, you have to go through or, you know, fights that you have to fight in order to get in. I'm just wondering, I'm like, what is that about? <laughs> That's a good question, Kim. I think, you know, there's a lot to unpack there around the history of the country and how opportunity has been distributed. But one thing that I'll kind of dig on um, is what I've learned that I think has been interesting is a lot of people kind of blame the people at the top, right? It's often like, oh, the executives or the CEOs or the people at the top are really kind of putting in place barriers to entry. And one of the things that I've learned is it's really about cutting through all the people in the middle, because when we actually speak with some of these leading developers and some of our partners, it's incredible just how much they care, right? It's not just about building a business, shutting other people out and making lots of money. Obviously, they're profit driven, but really they're incredibly aware of the societal issues that they impact. They want to change. They want to do good. They want to leave a positive legacy in the world. And they're incredibly sharp as people to work with. And I think sometimes that just gets lost in translation because there's so many middle people that get in the way of the agenda of the real leaders of the company and and everything else and how it's executed just because they're not in the weeds. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. Most people may not realize that, but a lot of times the people that are C-suite in most companies, they're just getting the updates. They're not in the everyday um weeds of it all, <laughs> which, which again, to, to a disservice to them, because they may not even know that so many people are having these hardships because they're so focused on trusting that everything they receive is actually what it is. Right. Until they go to Glassdoor or, <laughs> you know, and then they're like, oh, yeah. what? Yeah. It's like uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's why, again, that it's, it's good for people to understand that everything is a matter of perception. You know, just because you may be feeling injustices doesn't mean that your <laughs> your company CEO is even aware of it. 
not that they are not aware of what's going on in the world, but they may not be aware of how you specifically may be feeling, especially if your manager is blocking any kind of entry that you may have to said person to actually voice this in a respectful way. It happens, you know, I'm like, it happens. But of course, we're not going to talk about that. We can't save every problem. But one thing that I did want to go into, because again, you do have a business and I'm sure listeners want to know, they want to know about the numbers. So can you tell us how you entered your journey to funding? Yeah, absolutely, Kim. So, you know, funding, fundraising has literally been one of the, probably one of the greatest ups and downs of my life. Um, The first time that we tried to raise money, it was incredibly difficult. Um, We had raised some money from small check investors, maybe like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, And with that money, Abby, my partner and I, we'd quit our corporate jobs and we're working on a SUSU full time. Uh, and we were bootstrapping for close to 16 months. And that's when we were really getting close to raising additional capital. And, you know, it, it might be the classic entrepreneur story, but, you know, at that point we were six credit cards in debt, you know, I was couch surfing, um, people were calling my family, trying to figure out, you know, how to collect cash from me. So it was just like not a great situation. And we had actually started putting together a round of close to $2 million and our lead investor actually had spent their fund. They, they basically were out of cash. And so they were like, oh, sorry, we were really excited about what you're doing. We can't actually make this investment. And so our entire financing crumbled. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just incredibly painful. And I remember that, like, I'll never forget that. And I, I think I just like rolled, I just went to the couch, rolled into a ball and like passed out. Um, but then, you know, Abby and I spoke the next day and we we're like, you know what, we put everything on the line for this business. This needs to exist. We believe in what we're doing. We're seeing the impact we're having in people's lives. And one way or another, we're going to keep building this. And I'm really glad that, you know, we kind of persevered in that moment because then after that, we met our now lead investor, Acumen Fund, uh, and they were a phenomenal partner for us. They put us through a rigorous, rigorous diligence process. But wow. once we got approval, um, we were able to raise that $1.6 million. And this was in 2019. Um, mm-hmm. We've since raised another 2.3 million or so in capital. And the second time around, it was much more um, straightforward. And, you know, one of the things that was cool about this round is we were able to be a little bit more selective in who we take money from. And we're intentional in really taking 70% of our venture capital firm, um, black managed or female managed venture capital firms. So that way, when we win, we're making sure that money gets invested in other founders of colors and other communities of color. Well, congratulations, Samir, because that is awesome. And of course, Manifest is all about intentionality. So I love that you are doing that and really ensuring that, again, you're sending that elevator back down (laughs) to others. But how did you get the investors to, you know, believe in you because you said it was rigorous so how did you get them to really believe in what you were doing yeah so i think the the thing that made it hard for us right was the way that one we didn't have existing relationships so we had to kind of build that network of venture capitalists from start Um, but i think the other thing that made it hard is people have an easier time investing when they have proximity to the issue that's being solved and Mm -hmm. so so many of these investors don't really understand the, not that they don't understand, but 
you know, the issues of credit and financial access and inclusion just weren't really relevant in their lives. Most of their friends are bankers and consultants and lawyers and all making six figures and living a really cushy life. And so when we're here talking about how low to moderate income consumers need help with solutions like this that give them a fighting chance to improve credit, get access to cheap loans, have opportunities to become homeowners, things that to them are almost taken for granted, it's a lot harder to kind of break through that perception gap. And obviously, you know, as it's been documented, we're, we don't look like your traditional founders. And so that, also, <laughs> um, you know, has its role where, you know, VCs operate off mental models. They want to see things like what came before them. And frankly, not a lot of people that look like us have raised money like we have. And so that in itself was a barrier. But the way that we kind of worked around that um, is you turn it into a numbers game. And so to get a little bit tactical, we basically put together a spreadsheet of close to 300 venture capital firms, documented out, think like your classic sales funnel, documented our kind of warm intro, you know, who our closest connection was there, and just went on offense and tried to set up as many meetings as we could. And then we just tried to be as excellent as we could be in every interaction. And so what that looked like was we would do our research on the VC and the firm and their prior investments. So we went into every meeting prepared. We set up what you call a data room, which is traditionally something that's done in mergers and acquisitions or kind of later stage investing. But it's basically a um, packet or folder that includes all the pertinent information that a, 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 an investor would have to do. Uh, to, would have to look at to make an investment decision so that we could kind of kick off the conversation, have all that material prepared, kind of be essentially over-prepared and over-qualified to kind of have those conversations um, just so that we could really make those impressions. And at some point, it just became a numbers game. And I think, you know, one of my mentors and someone that I look up to kind of described raising money as purposeful pain. Um, kind of being on the other side of it, I do think that's also true because that process, while unnecessarily challenging at times, also helped us get better at kind of understanding what's our narrative, how do we tell our story in a way that's compelling, how do we really speak to a venture capital's sense of purpose, but more so their sense of uh, greed, and really make them feel like there's an opportunity here to do something great for the world, but also make a good return. Um, and so we focus not as much on the impact, but really the size of the market and um, why we were uniquely suited to kind of execute against this opportunity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it sounds like by doing all of that, especially the research and putting that sales funnel together, you <laughs> you came out on top, right? So it all paid off or you are continuously coming out on top and it paid off. But what about getting the landlords to sign on? Because, you know, you mentioned that the investors may be <laughs> a little focused on greed, but some landlords... <laughs> they they can also be focused on greed, you know, and not always the best when it comes to ensuring that their tenants are having a good experience. So how did you get them to sign on and to do exactly what you needed them to do in order for them to remain in the program? Yeah, Kim, that's another uh, fantastic question. So one thing I'll preface with is if there's anything I love to do and there's anything that Abby loves to do, it's sell. So okay. this is like our favorite thing to do is understand our market, who our customers are, make them feel great about their lives and figure out a way to create a, create a deal. Um, and I think what we really focused on was how do we create a win-win here, right? There's this narrative and it's true for some reasons, but there's this narrative that tenants are the good guys, landlords are the bad guys. 
And if we kind of approached landlords with that mindset, we won't get anywhere. They wouldn't want to work with us. They wouldn't think that we're there to support them. So we really tried to spend time and understand what their problems are. And what's really interesting is a lot of the things that are bad for tenants are also bad for landlords. Uh, Mm -hmm. As an example, an eviction is actually really expensive. Uh, Really? How expensive are we talking? In a city like New York or San Francisco, it can cost up to $20,000. Wow. Because there's court fees, there's legal fees, there's the damage the tenant might do to the property. There's then the time that that unit might be vacant. And obviously all these things are regulated, right? So even if the landlord was just not a good person and only financially motivated, evictions don't necessarily make sense if there's alternative options. Mm-hmm. Um, and from an operation standpoint, it's just a massive waste of time for the landlords or the property management staff to be reaching out to tenants, trying to get them to pay on time and doing that collections process. And so our go-to-market to landlords is pretty straightforward. We're like, look, when you report your rental payment data into the credit bureaus, it acts as a positive incentive for tenants to pay on time. Um, TransUnion did a study on this, and they found that 70% of tenants are more likely to pay their rent on time. And actually, two-thirds of tenants are more likely to choose a building with this amenity over one without it. So on the surface right there, you're, okay, you're increasing your likelihood to get paid, and you're also increasing the likelihood that a tenant chooses to stay in one of your residences over one of your competitors. Um, And then with the addition of our kind of rental stability loan, now when a tenant hits a financial shock, um, we're able to pair them with a financial product that keeps you as a landlord getting paid, but then prevents you from needing to evict someone. And for us, has the benefits of keeping a tenant in their home, keeping families from being put out on the street. And if you talk to landlords, I find that oftentimes if there's a tenant who's a good tenant um, that's been working with them for, you know, living in one of their properties for some time and has a short-term emergency or needs help, they'd much rather find a way to work with that tenant than kind of evict them because you don't know what you're going to get with a new tenant. Right. That is true. (laughs) It's so true. I have definitely seen uh, landlords who have loved their tenants like they don't want them to ever leave. Right. Then I've also seen examples where a a landlord decided to sell their home to a tenant as opposed to putting it like on the market per se for someone else to buy it because they just really trusted them, you know, and they really wanted to ensure that that property, although it would no longer belong to them, it would still get the same TLC that the tenant was giving them. So yeah, I've seen that happen. But I've also seen those other. Oh yeah, <laughs> the landlords are out there, um, and we're trying to figure out a way where it's a win-win, where we can go to them and say, like, look, even if you could care less about your tenants, here is a profit-driven reason for you to do this. Because what we care about at the end of the day is making sure that our folks are able to build their credit, have access to good financial opportunities, and kind of see that economic justice happen. Mm -hmm. But I was going to actually say that there are some bad tenants who are like, my mom calls them career movers. So my mom, she actually had a home where she had tenants and it was, it was actually her second home that she, she owned and she had tenants there. And these two tenants were like at first amazing, right? So they did everything they were supposed to do <laughs> so that they flew under the radar until month six 
when they stopped paying, they started to, you know, just do all sorts of things that were really starting to frustrate her. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was really annoying because I was in college at the time. And I remember my mom would be like, oh my goodness, you know, the tenants. And and I'm saying to myself, why are these people this way, right? Mm-hmm. But then what I learned, or my mom even came to learn after she did like a more deeper dive into their background was that they were career movers. So they would do everything right at first. And then around the six month mark, because they didn't want to pay anymore, they would find something wrong with everything. Then all of a sudden, you know, like they would make complaints where they were doing it verbally. And then that could become harassment. But then if you responded to them, all of a sudden they're saying that you did this to them. So it was just a bad situation. And sadly in that instance, my mom gave up the property because she was like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But I've seen situations like that before where some tenants have, you know, they've been the ones (laughs) that makes the landlord want to rip their hair out because they're just like, this is not what I expected. Mm. You know, so... It's a, it's a tricky situation for sure, but you know any investment that we make is tricky. So you just never know what you, you never know what you're going to get. And I don't mean to say it like that for anyone to feel like, well, you know, Kim, that's my situation currently. My landlord is acting, you know, whatever. Don't make it seem like I need to just deal with this. That's not what I mean. But what I really mean by it is that everyone takes a risk, right? You know, so the landlord's taking one, the tenant's taking one. We just you just never know. You just never know. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, you know, like, the, it's just like, it's more so like, for me, it's like, let's not create the like, you know, David and Goliath, good guy, bad guy kind of narrative. Like, right. there's a way in which we can all figure out a way to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and landlords more often than not, you know, they're running a business, they have loans against the business, especially mom and pop landlords, like your mother, she's, right. you know, you're just trying to also make your mortgage obligations squeak out some of that cash flow. Exactly. Um, also create a decent living experience. And like, we need to figure out a way for both parties to win. It can't be lopsided either way. Right. Right. Which is why, again, I can't stress it enough. The work that you're doing is really important because you're ensuring that everyone wins, you know, so that no one is, is <laughs> the one that's left out. And because of that, I'm hoping that there would be more people that are listening that are like, you know what, I want to be a part of that program. So if there are people that are saying or feeling that, what's a way for them to get involved? Or to, to is it a, like, talk us through the process. Is there a program? Do they have to fill out an application? Like walk us through those steps. Yeah, no, absolutely, Kim. So I guess like in terms of getting involved with the SUSU or rent reporting, there's kind of a few separate things. So one, if you work with a larger landlord that is a partner of ours, then traditionally we actually, um, the landlord will pay us and then you'll get this as a free amenity. If you're listening and you're not familiar with us, then that probably means that's not the case. So we have an ability for tenants to actually do a um, have the ability to sign up for our program and pay the cost directly themselves because we didn't want to leave people behind if, let's say, they're with a smaller mom and pop landlord. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to do that, you can go to susurent.com. It's our website. There'll be kind of like a portal for consumers and for people to download our mobile app. And then if you're a tenant that is struggling because of COVID, whether it's economic, whether it's health, whether it's a family member, um, we offer 0% interest loans 
with a three-month um, kind of grace period where you don't have to do anything, and that's at www.asusurentrelief.com. And all of our funders are philanthropic, nonprofits, you know, organizations just trying to help people out in these difficult times. Amazing. That's amazing. And because we've been talking about such deep stuff for the past <laughs> minutes or so, I wanted to shake it up a bit. So you're doing all this good stuff. You're busy. You get tired. What is your song of motivation and why? Mm. Kim, it's funny because people will ask this question and I'm like one of those people that doesn't really have a good answer. <laughs> music tastes are just like very varied and it kind of just depends on my mood. And uh-huh. so Spotify now runs my music listening. And so I've got all these like stations. It's like daily station one, two, three, four, five, six. And they're just like different moods. But, you know, I think if I were to say what I'd be listening to in the morning or during a workout, it'd be something just like with heavy beats, like some sort of like trap hip hop type music. If it's later in the day, it'll be something a little more chilled out, but not too chilled out. So it'll be more like, you know, maybe some Bhangra Indian beats or Nija music or uh, even like grime hip hop is something I've been listening to recently. So that's kind of, but I don't really have a motivation song or like a go-to. But that's okay because again, this shows that you have all sorts of options out here. So, you know, it's like Spotify is giving you tons of options and because you didn't have a favorite or a specific song, I have another follow-up question for you, which is what if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world? What would it say and where would it be? Whew. Huh. Man, I, and I should know the answer to this because I listened to uh, Tim Ferriss and he asked this question. <laughs> and I feel like I should have a go-to, like, boom. But I... Huh. That just shows people again, like, you've been a lot of places. You have to think about this. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I might even go back to what I, what I had said before, which is, you know, nothing worth doing is worth doing alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting that message out there, you know, it's, it's it's people are so important to this shared experience that we all have. And where I would put it, um, I'd probably put it in like a major metropolitan where you're surrounded by people, but you don't really feel like connected to people sometimes. So maybe uh, L.A. or New York or the Bay Area or something like that. Those are perfect places because people are not as connected as they would <laughs> Yeah, you would think um, in such a massive city, but it seems like that's not the case. Yeah, sadly, that's not the case. But with your billboard, it will get them there. (laughs) It will get them to being connected. And as we wind down, what is your advice for listeners that may be on the fence about, you know, becoming an entrepreneur or even considering taking their own hard-earned cash to invest in Isusu? Hmm. Wow. So those are two very different uh, questions. But in terms of people who are thinking about being an entrepreneur, I think, you know, like life never gets less complicated. Um, So my fundamental belief is that you want to look back and you don't want to have regrets. And so when I was considering whether or not to leave, you know, my LinkedIn job, which, you know, I sorely needed given all my student debt and such um, for Isusu, it was really that question of, you know, if I look back and I try this business and it fails, Will I regret it? And the answer was no. But if I had chosen to just stay the course and take the safe path, I knew that I would regret that probably for the rest of my life. And so that is really what I'd say is like life doesn't get less complicated. If there's something that really calls to you, um, I'd encourage you to do it. 
And then on the flip side to that, though, I would say that entrepreneurship is an incredibly hard role. What gets you through those like really low lows is that deep conviction in what you're doing and the people around you. And so entrepreneurship is really sexy right now. Like, don't do it just because it's like the cool thing on the block. Like, if you really feel strongly about what you're doing, because it'll test you, it'll, it'll stretch you, and it'll really push your limits. And so I think that would be my my two my two thoughts around that. And then in terms of people who want to invest in a SUSU, um, you know, what I'll say is one, like there's nothing scarier than having people that you know that put money into your business. That's what keeps you up at night. Like when an individual <laughs> person invests in your business, you're like, all right, like this is your job. But when you're like buddy from like a job or a college or someone is like, yeah, you know, I want to put some money into this. Like that's the money. Or someone's like, oh, you know what? I'd rather invest in a SUSU than like, put down on my mortgage, that's like what keeps you up at night. Um, so I'd say like one, like, you know, you can trust us to be a good custodian of the money, but more broadly outside of a SUSU, I definitely encourage you to take some of those bets. I think there's a lot that can be learned from going on the journey with a startup. And I think it's also beyond just like a ROI, it's a learning opportunity. Um, but as far as a SUSU goes, I'd say I've never felt as excited about this moment being our moment. Um, and I really feel like these next six to 12 months will be, you know, our chance to really accelerate growth more than we have. That's awesome. Awesome. And I, I wouldn't have thought that it would be the the people that you know that would keep you up at night, but it totally makes sense because you don't want to disappoint anyone. No, you don't want to disappoint anyone and you just know what's happening in their lives, right? Like it means so much more when you're like, wow, you like literally don't have seven thousand dollars in your bank account but you put five thousand into a susu and then that's what you're like i can't lose this money for this person i right. can't do it so whatever it takes you know you figure out a way <laughs> right exactly and exactly that you figure out a way and it gets done and then again everyone is winning which is what we like to hear so the last question i have for you is what are you manifesting You know, Kim, I think I'll answer that question in two parts. I think on the personal life, I'm trying to manifest a well-rounded and balanced life. But I once heard from someone that I don't look at balance as day-to-day, -day, but so much so over the course of an extended period of time, like a year or five years or something like that. And I think that's kind of shaping up to be my definition of balance because it's just like not really possible for me to like look at my day and be like, this was perfectly balanced. Like, right. wow. Um, so I think like what I'm manifesting is overall a holistic life where I, you know, invest in my partner and I, we, I, I do what I want to do professionally. I invest in my health and my, and my fitness and my well-being and my family and my friends. And so that's kind of what I'm manifesting personally. And then I think on the, you know, business standpoint, our mission at Asusu is to, or our vision, sorry, is to use data or unleash data to bridge the racial wealth gap. And I think that we have before us an enormous opportunity to take the data, take the, you know, kind of essentially access to people's data that we're getting to really unlock opportunities that people have been denied. So really using our data to help make mortgage loans more accessible, to use our data to make insurance products more accessible, to refinance student loans, to really help people who have been for whatever reason deemed a financial risk that were done so mistakenly. Um, and that opportunity, I think, is a massive business, but is really a way where we can make our mark on kind of bridging this this access and equity gap. Well, you definitely have some big shoes ahead of you, and I know that you will 
get it done. I'm putting all of my confidence in you. So (laughs) not physical dollars, but all of my, you know, positive energy and all of the, the truths that I believe to be about you to know that you are going to get the work done. And I'm excited to be on this journey with you to see these things manifest, but also to just know you because it's an honor to know someone that is not just talking the talk, but truly walking it as well. And that's just overall authentic. So Samir, thank you so much for joining Let's Manifest. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation and you come back. <laughs> like, <laughs> did it scare you too much? I'm just kidding. I know I didn't scare you. No, Kim, this was such a delight to be here with me. I appreciate the thoughtful questions and I just appreciate being able to spend some time with you. You're an incredible person and I'm glad that um, I was able to speak with you and hopefully to your community as well. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And listeners, this message is for you. Before you jump to the next episode of Let's Manifest, don't forget to share this podcast, leave a review, learn more about Isusu using the link to the website, which is in the show notes. And if you have any questions or simply want to show gratitude for Samir sharing his story, why don't you just reach out and let him know? And until next time, let's manifest. Thanks, Samir. Thanks for listening to the Manifest podcast. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Share this with your family. Share this with your friends. Share this with your colleagues. Just share this with your entire community. And until next time, let's manifest.